was reading earlier this week. Um, I, I, I honestly, for the last several years, I've gone back and pulled uh, President Abraham Lincoln's proclamation uh, setting the day for Thanksgiving in his day, and it was, by the way, right during the Civil War. Uh, interestingly, when they said, when he said, you know what, we're going to proclaim this a national holiday to pray. But he wasn't really the first one that did that. Actually, back in 1789. In 1789, President George Washington uh, proclaims a day, and it was, I believe, uh, Thursday, November 26th, 1789. And it was interesting. You might want to Google it. You know, Washington's Thanksgiving proclamation. I've I've got a copy of it, but I won't read it. Um, But it's really interesting because he says, I, I just find this really intriguing. He says that Congress... Both houses of Congress compelled him to do this. They required him to call a day um, of, of um, kind of vacation, a, a day of celebration and holiday to thank God. That may be the last time the two houses of Congress ever agreed on anything. <laughs> but I find it intriguing that Congress said to the president, you're going to call a day to thank God. Can you imagine? What? I'm sorry? But you, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Now, I will, I will argue with you only to the point... Nancy, I don't ever argue with you. But I will argue with you only to the point of saying, you could argue that this coming Thursday is the most religious holiday on our calendar. More than Christmas. Because not everybody celebrates Christmas. But everybody gets kind of a day off. Most people get a day off. Unless I guess you work at Walmart. Um, uh, you get a day, literally the government says we're shutting her down not to eat turkey and watch football. That, that's, that's something else that's happened. We're shutting it down so that you'll have time and space to thank God. I think you should. I think the best comedians are older comedians, you know. They get life. Jay Leno says you've had no, you know you can tell you ate too much for Thanksgiving when you have to let your bathrobe out. Johnny Carson says, Thanksgiving is an emotional holiday. People travel thousands of miles to be with people they only see once a year, and then they discover that once a year is way too often. <laughs> Remember Irma Bombeck? She talks about fixing dinner. So the, you ladies who've got to fix dinner. Thanksgiving dinners take 18 hours to prepare. They're consumed in 12 minutes. Half times take 12, 12 minutes. This is not a coincidence. <laughs> I think that's really good. Really good. Uh, Richard, do I see you over there? How's our friend Richard doing? How are you, pal? You look good. It's so good to see you here. Since we saw you last, you've really been pulled through a knot hole, my friend. But he come through it looking good, Kay. You know, okay. We just want you to know that we're still praying for you, and we, we still will. Okay. All right. Richard Yosting and Kay. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the scriptures. Go to Acts 17. We're going to go through three, Paul is going to go through three places. He's going to go to Thessalonica, he's going to go to Berea, and he's going to end up at Athens. And we're going to talk a little, we're going to park a little bit in Athens. Um, um, that he's going to end up in this beautiful city uh, that is a key city of Athens in his day. Now, a factor often overlooked today 
is that ancient Athens was not just a philosophical center, it was a religious center. Um, the dividing line between philosophy and religion that is drawn by many today was unknown in the ancient world. I've had two friends, two fairly close friends as young men who went to a university to study philosophy and their faith in God was train wrecked, both of these men. I just find that really intriguing. In Paul's day, the dividing line between philosophy and religion was not as pronounced. Uh, so that context means that Paul's preaching of the gospel outside of the synagogue, we're going to talk a little more about what he did inside the synagogue today, um, required a different strategy that he used. In, so he's going to use a different strategy when he goes to Thessalonica and Berea than he does in Athens. And we'll talk a little bit about what that strategy is. Now, here's what you can remember as we go. I'm going to ask... Um, I'm going to ask uh, Bob to read the first four verses of chapter 17. There's some, some kind of larger words in there to get through. Nothing, nothing for a stepper like Bob. Here's what you can remember this little, uh, this little saying. There was a girl from Thessalonica. There was a girl from Thessalonica who loved to celebrate Hanukkah. Now, you can say that, but then you'll get the pronunciation wrong because it's Thessalonica, not Thessalonica. So anyway. That doesn't work at all then, does it? <laughs> all right. Bob, get me out of this. Will you read the first four verses? Amphipolis and Apollonia, Apollo, I think. Okay, now we're going to look at what his effectiveness was here in Thessalonica. Now, let me give you a little bit of geography here. He's, when we left him last week, remember, he had begun the first kind of European church in Philippi, in Macedonia, in kind of the, uh, um, the, the um, uh, peninsula of Greece. Well, from Philippi to Amphipolis is about 30 miles, 33 miles, something like that. Uh, uh, from Amphipolis to Apollonia is another 28 miles or so. And then from Apollonia on to Thessalonica is another 30 miles or so. Um, uh, and by the way, one of the, the details is just you think about it. What I think about typically when I'm thinking about travel in the ancient world, if they're on horseback, it takes about, they can go about 35 miles a day. Now, any of you horse, are you any of you uh, equestrians in here? Where, where's Roxy? How far can you ride in a day, Roxy? How far can you ride in a day? You don't know. We don't ride for distance. We just ride around barrels, don't we? Okay. Um, yeah, I, I get that. But I got your attention, didn't I? Um, about 35 miles on horseback in the ancient world, but Paul would probably not have been on horseback. He'd probably been walking. So more like 20 miles a day to travel unless he ended up uh, shipbound in some of this. And in this case, he was not. So you've got all this happening. And he, it's interesting to me that he, um, he, he makes us, he, he stops, he can kind of, you catch the, uh, the, the points on the, on the, 
um, map that he goes to. He stops in Amphipolis. Um, uh, he goes on to Apollonia and then goes to um, uh, Thessalonica. Well, now the deal is, my question would be then, why didn't he stop in the two towns that begin with A? Well, what you need to know is probably, probably why he went on to Thessalonica didn't stop in Apollonia or Amphipolis was because there were no synagogues there. His typical, if you remember even from our study in Philippi Philippi last week in chapter 16, you remember his typical procedure was to find the people of faith in God to begin with and he's going to find them hanging out at a synagogue somewhere in kind of the dispersed Jewish world. Probably then, these two towns beginning with A didn't have a synagogue, and so he just kind of stops there, spends the night, goes on. Um, uh, And so he's going to share the gospel in every town that he goes by beginning to go to the synagogue first, find people who already believe in the same God that you and I believe in, because he's the only one anyway, right? And then he begins to share with them the gospel. So uh, let's look at kind of some evidence of that. Go with me back to 9. I'm just going to read rapid fire 2 or 3 real quickly. 9.20. Look at what he does here. He's in Damascus. This is right after he meets Christ. Immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the Son of God. So he started. That, he started out that way. He's going, to, he's going to keep riding that horse. 13.5. I put 13.3, but it needed to be 13.5. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. Okay, so that's kind of that deal. Go to, go over to, we're back in 17. We're going to go ahead a little bit. In 10, we'll see this in a minute when they get to Berea. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. You see that? Now look, look down at verse 17. He, he goes to Athens... And he begins there, reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. But he also is working in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be present. And what he's realizing as he works in the marketplace is that he's going to have to have a completely 180-degree strategy change from what he does in the synagogue and what he does in the marketplace. Can I tell you, that's great advice to you and me. That... The, the work I do in evangelism, the work I do in sharing my faith in Christ or the gospel among people who already believe is very, very different from those who have uh, no knowledge of God. I've got to come from a different place. We're going to look at kind of where he comes from today on that. He's going to need a different strategy here. Now, but he's in the synagogue here in the first four verses in a place called Thessalonica. He was later going to write two letters to them, uh, kind of helping them with some theological points that they kind of were having trouble with, especially, by the way, uh, he's concerned that they get it right on the second coming. If you've got any questions about the second coming, um, the books of Thessalonians, the letters to the Thessalonians are good teaching on uh, some things that will happen when Jesus comes again and the fact of his return. Well, anyway, his two main points here are the cross. He probably used Isaiah 53 or something like that. He's, he's going to talk about the cross, and he's going to talk about the resurrection. Okay? Now, 
I, I, I begin to think a little bit here about um, um, how he would have a struggle in dealing with Jewish people on these issues. Now, here's, here's going to be his difficult selling point. He's got a couple of things that are going to be really, really difficult for him. First of all, the Jews are still looking for the Messiah. And what they're looking for is a general on a horse. Maybe in a chariot with a sword. When the Messiah actually came, what did they get? A baby in a manger, a preacher, a healer, a suffering servant. He's going to be described in the book of Isaiah. So he's going to have, a, if, if his selling point is the resurrection, he's got to make a case for the need for a resurrection. First, the idea that the Messiah that you were looking for isn't exactly the kind of Messiah that you were looking for. In fact, you put him to death and God had to raise him back to life. That's a little bit of tough sell. I, I, I did some reading this week too. There's another deal, and this is even true, I guess, of, of modern Jews, at least of, of this particular writer was talking about it. There's another challenge that Paul's going to have. He's going he's to use, we think at least, the book of Isaiah and all that predictive literature to, um, from 800 years or so or 700 years before Christ, talking about the cross, Isaiah 53 and other places like that. But one of the challenges is, from my understanding, is in the synagogue, they read, they read the um, Pentateuch, they read the first five books, the law, a lot. They read the Psalms a lot. But they didn't often pull out the prophet Isaiah. In fact, that makes, if, if my friend, the commentator, um, is, is right about that, that they really don't spend a whole lot of time around Isaiah. In fact, this guy's going to say, Isaiah isn't read in synagogues today. It's not that they're, reading, they're not reading Isaiah rightly, it's that they're not reading Isaiah at all. Now, by the way, that makes it even more intriguing in John 4. John 4, Luke 4. Where, um, this is not in the notes, so I'm flying by instruments here. Um, where Jesus, I think it's a Luke 4, where Jesus is, it goes to the synagogue to and, and he's with his entourage, announces his public ministry, and he reads from Isaiah 61. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Remember that? I think that's on Luke 4. Okay, so... Uh, he's going to read. He's going to pull a scroll that he had to blow the dust off of when he reads that. Now I find this intriguing, at least for you and me. Uh, often I will be working with people who are far from God, or at least have some philosophical challenge to faith, and I will say, "Well, have you read God's Word? Have you read the Bible?" And they will say, "I don't believe the Bible." And I say, "Have you read the Bible?" And they say, "I don't believe the Bible." And I say, "But have you read the Bible?" And they say, "I don't believe." Okay, so we had that little circular conversation. Because the truth is, you and I may have met people. I've certainly read stories, and I've met other people who started to read the Bible, and it radically transformed their lives, even though they came to it as a non-believer. Read it like a novel, if you want to. Problem with that is, it's not a novel. It's, it's a great story, the greatest story ever told, but it's true. So, Paul's going to have his work cut out for him, as my dad would say. 
And he begins with talking with them about the cross and the resurrection. Now, the results are really interesting here. Look at the list of people that come to faith in verse 4. Okay, look at the list of people. Uh, and I'm going to use the word here. The results of Paul's work are uneven. Look at it. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Along with, look at this, a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. Now let's look at that three groups of people. The ones that you would think would be the most likely to respond, okay, uh, Jewish people attending synagogue every Saturday and being, uh, living there in Thessalonica, you would think that would be the number one group, but actually it was only a few of them, some of them accepted Christ by faith as the Messiah, but a large group, a large group of people who were looking for God, couldn't find him in paganism, accepted Jesus by faith. And it mentions, so this is kind of an important distinction. I want to make, take a stretch here, but I want you to think about this at least. Who else? Who was the third group of people that came to faith? Prominent women. women. Prominent women. Now, let, let me suggest something to you. In some of my reading, it seems to me that there were lots and lots of, um, of women in the Greek system in Paul's day who were just absolutely worn out by paganism. Okay? The multiple God thing just didn't, you know. My husband may be in the, in the Roman Senate, but I tell you what, his lifestyle stinks. And it's propped up by this paganism. Oh, my husband may argue very intelligently at the Areopagus every day in Athens. But his lifestyle is just crude. And so women in particular were very hungry to hear a liberating message. And the gospel provided that. Do you guys know? That don't let anybody persuade you any differently can you, than what I'm getting ready to tell you. That Jesus and early Christians did more to liberate women than anybody before or since. Prove me wrong. I don't think you can. And so prominent women, influential women, became really linchpins in the spreading of the gospel because they were just hungry for something that wasn't cruel and crude and capricious and pagan. And they probably said something like, and maybe somebody said this to you, I have looked for this all my life. Where have you been? I have looked for this story all my life. Where have you been? Okay, so let's move on now. Paul gets himself in trouble, as he usually does. And they're going to run him out of town. So he's going to go to Berea. All right? And uh, he's going to work out there for a little bit. Um, let's see, John, you're over there. Would you mind read 10, 11, and 12?
Okay? Paul was made to escape. Now I'm going to read to you a little bit of kind of what happens in between there. Let's look at verse 5. Okay? The Jews, becoming jealous and taking among them some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob. This was in Thessalonica. Uh, formed a mob, Thessalonica, sorry, and set the city in an uproar and attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they didn't find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. So anyway, he's got to slip out of town. He's got to slip out of town. He's made to escape. That's what goes in the line there. Then he begins in a new place in Berea down the road with the same strategy. He starts again in the, um, in the synagogue. Now, I barely mentioned, I just kind of marked, marched over uh, one verse, verse 6. Look at verse 6 in your Bible. There is a, a, there is a, a charge they're accused of. That sticks, really. One of the reasons I got run out of town. Look at what it says. This is Paul and Silas. Timothy's with them, I think, by this, by this point. When they didn't find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. What does your Bible say right there? One translation says, these men who have turned the world upside down. Now, here's a good barometer of, of spirituality and faith. I'm just going to tell you. Are you turning your world upside down? Okay? Are you turning your world upside down? Are you upsetting your world? I want you to consider that. Can I tell you something that you're not going to want to hear? There are millions of people who read the Koran every day and they're turning the world upside down. That's not the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be us who are reading the gospel who turn the world upside down. I just want to leave you with that challenge. And this is for me. The fingers are all pointing at me. And I'm dealing with this in my own life. Am I doing enough to turn my world upside down? They did. Now, the Berean Jews were interesting. They, he meets them at the synagogue. He shares the gospel with them. And uh, it says here in, in the scriptures, they have a, a, they're more noble. Did you catch that word? More noble. Now, if I, I put um, um, Luke 19, 12. There's, there's a, a reference there. The same writer, um, Dr. Luke, who writes there about a nobleman in uh, Luke, 7, Luke 19, 12. And so usually when this word is used, it usually refers to somebody, somebody's social status. They were of more noble character. Okay? This was somebody who was connected or, or had the right kind of a blue blood uh, pedigree. Right? But here Luke is using the, word, the same word, but here it denotes someone who has a better disposition. kind of doesn't matter who my mom and dad were if my disposition's off, right? And so he says they have a better disposition. Now, uh, it's interesting to me, why is he calling them, uh, why are they saying they're of more noble character or have a better disposition? What are they doing that's better? They hear Paul talk in the daytime, they go home at night and check it out. You ever do that? We're supposed to do that. You're right, Estella. Um, 
it's it's a this kind of a a military uh, political thing, but it's you know trust but verify, right? Well, it's like well, I really like what I hear, but I'm going to go back to my copy of the scriptures, and I'm going to make sure that he's not quoting something out of context. Do we have any responsibility to do that? You bet we do. You bet we do. Um, I'm going to say it one more time. Marty would be proud of me for saying this. If you watch, quote, religious, end quote, TV, you need to have your Bible nearby. And you need to check it out. Every one of them. Every last one of them. Any preaching. Any teaching. I need to come to it with a sense of faith and trust, but I need to verify. So this is why they were commended here. And so they go home, they check it out, they come back and they say, you know, you're right. Um, tell us more. And, and so Paul can do a lot among them because of that. Um, he can kind of uh, do very, very much here because of what they're willing to do. Now, um, so Paul's scriptural teaching here of the gospel, passes what would be called their scriptural test. But look at verse 13. Paul's Thessalonian friends arrive. They hear he's in Berea. They show up, and they're going to, they're gonna, you know, somebody is eating chips with paste salsa, and they say, get a rope. You know, they're getting ready to... So he's got, to, he's got to escape again. He's got some friends there who know the way to Athens, and they say, uh, dude, come with us. And they take him 300 miles south to Athens. Um, so this is a long trip. And, uh, but he goes to Athens. Paul and Silas, I'm sorry, Silas and Timothy stay behind in uh, Berea. They've got a lot of work to do, and they're not, as, they're not in as much trouble as Paul's in. So he goes on to Athens, uh, with kind of an entourage that kind of helps him get there, make sure he's got safe passage. And he goes that long trip to Athens. Uh, Timothy and Silas stay to, to finish some of the work in Berea. So he's by himself. You've got to think about this. What would the Apostle Paul do when he's by himself in a place like Athens? Uh, wouldn't you love to have a videotape of this one? So he's in Athens. He does go to the synagogue. You can read about that. He's doing some work among the uh, believers, the Jewish uh, persons in synagogue, in the synagogue, but he's exploring the city uh, outside of that alone, and he begins to, some things start capturing his attention. I want to read verse 16, 17, and 18 to you. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked as he was observing the city full of idols. It just ticked him off. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. So he's starting to engage the people in the marketplace, but they're saying, man, this guy's nuts. So he recognizes that he's got to come up with a different strategy for the marketplace where they don't have the common ground of the Old Testament. They don't have any 
They know who the Jews are, but they don't know much about them. They worship a different God than the 15 that I've got on my mantle place. So he has to come up with a different strategy. Um, he's going he's gonna to deal with, he's going to kind of become um, uh, intrigued with their deities, not to the point of being thrown off guard, but as a point of, of common ground. He's eventually going to say to them, you know, I notice you people are really religious. And he's going to say, you know, so am I. Um, what, a great, what a great entree. So, uh, somebody, if you would, please, go to 23 and read, tw uh, read 23 and then jump and read 20, uh, 27 and 28. Let, let's hang out right there for just a minute. Now, he's engaging. I'm sorry. Oh wow. Well, you can uh, you can kind of confirm some of the stuff we're going to talk about here. Okay, he is on. He in, is engaging these people at a place called the Areopagus or Mars Hill. And uh, it's a place where all the philosophers come to just kind of share their ideas. And he begins to engage some of these people. And as he does so, he's recognizing here that um, uh, one, he sees all these kind of shrines and, sh and, uh, and statues and that kind of thing erected for the various pagan deities. And one in particular has caught his eye. There's one called an unknown god. Now, he seems to witness... Uh, its existence seemed to witness to the Athenians a desire to avoid overlooking any gods or goddesses. It's like, okay, if we missed one, we want to catch that. Better to offer a token of worship to a deity they've not identified than to risk offending him. So they kind of put this unknown god deal there. Another possible reason for this altar is that the Greeks are always concerned about how a god might be able to benefit them. So the Athenians don't want to take any chances, so they have an altar of contingency. Now put that down. They have an altar of contingency. They um, kind of want to cover all the bases. Paul's message is, hey guys, I know you got one to an unknown God, but frankly, you missed one. And I know him. And he is so far unknown to you. So far. But I want to tell him, tell you about it. And so, 
I, I find this interesting, and I, I'm just going to play this again in here. It won't, won't wear us out with this, but the philosophers really in Paul's day have also begun to kind of question paganism. In fact, he plays on that. He's read some. He's listened to them, and he says, wouldn't it be preposterous to think that a god would live in something that was built by humans? And he would point, here, Ruth, here's where you can help me confirm, he can see the Parthenon from Mars Hill. Am I right? And he might point over there and say, isn't it interesting, even though as beautiful as that thing is, isn't it preposterous to think that we, with our own hands, could build someplace where God could live? And so he begins to talk to him about this unknown God. I know him, he says. He's going to start from this. Now, and he begins to say then, in verse 25, which is one of the key verses of this whole section of Scripture, he's going to say, you know what? God doesn't need anything. The word that needs to go there is nothing. God needs nothing. Can I tell you something? Your theology, what you believe about God really matters. Remember Trust and Verify? I had a dear friend of mine who, who left this world with, with a great challenge to his faith. He had lost a daughter early in life. She was a young mother, about 30 years old, got an illness and died nearly suddenly. And the great challenge to his faith for the rest of his life was why would God take her away? Added to that was the absolutely insane thought that some, you know, my dad used to talk about alleged plumbers. This was an alleged preacher who said, in her memorial service, God needed her more in heaven. I want to throw up. God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need you to build him a shrine. And so Paul's going down that avenue. The theology matters, he's going, to, he's going to kind of say here. And the other thing that he does is really interesting. He's acquainted with their own writings. Look at this. He has read, it's interesting, he, he quotes the line, for in him we live and move and have our being, is from Epimedes, which is, uh, he's from Crete, a 6th century B.C. philosopher. He quotes him also in, in another place. The second quotation, we are his offspring, is from Aratus, a 3rd century B.C. Greek, Greek poet. He knew their writing better than they did. He was prepared. Now, I want you to go back with me to verse 26 and 27. Paul didn't start a church in Athens. Uh, I don't know how effective all that was, but he didn't start a church in Athens as far as we know. There were no churches planted there. But he engages them in an amazing way. And I want you tonight to think for a minute about those that we have tagged, and I've done it, I've, I've borrowed this phrase from somebody along over the years. I've tagged some, somebody, maybe you have in your life, well, he's far from God. A person, maybe, and I've said it from right here. Somebody, remember to, to pray for those in your family who are far from God, those at your work who are far from God. And I think it's a, it's a, a good moniker. But Paul kind of blows the lid off of that in verse 25 and 26. Let's read it before we leave. He says here, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. 
And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, verse 27, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Is that as comforting to you as it is to me? It should be. Uh, think of those that you know who are far from God. Realize that they may be far from Him, but He is very, very close to them. I'm going to ask you to do a little assignment on your own time. It'll be, uh, I think it'll be encouraging to you. Uh, somebody sent me this week a, 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 like a two or three minute video clip of um, the Stephen Colbert show. Now, I'm not a big Stephen Colbert fan, so don't, don't get me started on that. But, and I'm certainly not a, a fan of the guests that he was interviewing. He was interviewing Bill Maher. I don't know if you know who Bill Maher is. Uh, I flip the channel, can't flip the channel fast enough when I see him come on there. Okay? A, 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 an absolute uh, atheist, agnostic, and, and um, militant about it. But he comes before Colbert, and they start talking about Colbert's faith, which I don't know anything about. I know he's a Roman Catholic. That's all I know. And it's interesting, through the use of humor and common understanding, what Colbert does with Mar. Previously, I would have thought, there is nobody on the planet farther from God than Bill Mar. But when I read verse 27 from Acts 17, what I recognize is, you know what? God's not far from Bill. All he's got to do is reach out. Is there anybody in your life who you would say is far from God? Here's my comfort to you today. God is not at all far from them. He's waiting for them to just reach out a little bit, and he's going to meet them more than halfway. God bless you. Happy Thanksgiving.